Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by John O'Halloran of University College Dublin. His paper was entitled, By Their Fruits Shall Ye Know Them, a reappraisal of the Marian bishops who conformed to the Elizabethan church settlement. Traditionally, the historiography of the Reformation in Ireland has tended to concentrate on the political and religious policies and reactions to them during the reigns of Henry and Elizabeth. In particular, the Elizabeth, Elizabeth's reign has drawn much of the focus. This is because it was during the second half of the 16th century, from 1560 onwards, that a distinctively counter-Reformation movement in Ireland became more assertive and indeed militant. This movement developed within the broader context of the struggle between Elizabeth I and Philip II and their respective sponsorships of Calvinist and Catholic contenders in France, the Low Countries, Scotland and Ireland. Yet between the long and momentous reigns of Henry and Elizabeth were those of Edward and Mary. Although brief, these reigns were not so insignificant in terms of how both of these monarchs set in motion respectively more clearly defined ideological divisions in England and Ireland that would have a much greater impact than the schismatic stance of their father or the theologically ambivalent stance of their surviving half-sister that satisfied neither Calvinist nor Catholic divines. Edward Zwinglianism has, has allowed a radical Protestant theology to put down stronger roots in England and to a much lesser degree in Ireland. Mary's commitment to the early Catholic reform movement, what scholars such as John Edwards, Eamon Duffy, Duffy yeah, David Lodes, Linda Porter, Jim Murray and Henry Jeffries refer to as Renaissance Catholicism, and also the measures that she took to counter heresy allowed for a Catholic recovery and the consolidation of a more committed, reformed Catholicism to take hold. As Brenda Bradshaw and Colin Lennon, Lennon have demonstrated, it was during Mary's reign that the future crack troopers of the Counter-Reformation, David Wolfe and Richard Cray, were intellectually formed and inspired to commit to the Catholic cause. Yet Mary's reign in Ireland, and particularly her appointments to bishoprics, has traditionally received somewhat limited attention. However, recent studies, such as by Henry Jeffries and George Dowdle, Vincent Carey on Thomas Leverell and Brennan Scott on William Walsh have opened up new dimensions in our knowledge of these clearly identifiable committed Catholic bishops. Indeed, their respective depositions from office have seen them acknowledged as exemplars of Catholic consistency by other scholars of the period, such as by Brenda Bradshaw, Kieran Brady, Nicholas Canney, Patrick Corrish, Colin Lennon and Marianne Lyons. Other prelates who apparently conformed to the Elizabethan religious policy, such as Hugh Kerwin, Christopher Bodkin, Roland de Burgo, Alexander Devereux, Thomas O'Field and Patrick Walsh have been regarded as being either unprincipled time servers at worst or doctrinally ambiguous at best. Yet, for example, Archbishops Kerwin and Bodkin have been to some extent recognised by historians such as Thomas Connors and James Murray as having aided and abetted the survival of Catholicism by their lack of initiative or energy in promoting Anglicanism. Given the differences in personalities amongst the surviving bishops from the Marian reign in English Ireland, the majority of whom apparently conformed to the Anglican church settlement in, in Ireland in February 1560, and given their respective backgrounds, interests, spiritual, cultural, intellectual dispositions and attitudes, 
it is difficult, if not impossible, to categorize them in black and white terminology. Yet, traditionally, they've been portrayed as docile, acquiescent, and lacking ideological commitment or moral fiber. This view has been narrowly based upon their response to the ecclesiastical legislation in the Irish Parliament of 1560. This paper will endeavor to demonstrate that such an interpretation and representation of these bishops is far too simplistic. In early modern Ireland, where politics and religion were closely intertwined, those who held high ecclesiastical offices and enjoyed the revenues thereof, or their relatives did, however limited, were obliged by the very necessity of survival to conduct themselves with the utmost politic skill. This acquired a particularly sharp relevance, especially within the English Pale and in areas where royal authority extended its writ, with the onset of crown-sponsored ecclesiastical reforms and changes. Therefore, it was not easy for such prelates to be too idealistic amid the complexities of political and material realities in Tudor Ireland. After Mary I had secured her grip to, on the throne in autumn 1553, it is not quite accurate to say that she restored Catholicism as it is generally understood. In her legal capacity as supreme head of the Church of England and of the Church of Ireland, she began the process of restoring Catholic liturgical practices, but she personally did not actively encourage a restoration of relic veneration or pilgrimages. Instead, her emphasis was on the Renaissance Christian humanist-inspired, scriptural-based reflection and Eucharistic devotion. In this respect, she was very much in tune with the Catholic reform movement that anticipated many of the reforms of Tridentine Catholicism that were formally promulgated in 1570. Reconciliation with Rome would have to wait for almost another year. During this period, Mary prepared the political and legal groundwork to accomplish it. Yet significantly, it was Mary who decided on who would be deprived of a mitre and who would receive one. Even after the formal reconciliation with the papacy, Mary continued to maintain her right of episcopal nomination and approval. A key element to achieving her religious objectives was ensuring that the bishops in both realms not only complied with her policies, but also shared her sacramental theological disposition. The Irish Church in autumn 1553 was administered by 34 bishops, some of whom held multiple sees. Some sees were vacant, and quite a few dioceses had, had contending royal and papal appointees. Yet some sees were occupied by prelates who were recognised by both contending authorities. Ambiguities abounded in this confused and confusing situation. Most of the bishops serving in English Ireland had outwardly conformed to the Henrician Reformation, which was essentially schismatic. But the Edwardian reforms, which rejected traditional Catholic doctrine and promoted a distinctively Protestant creed, saw some high-profile desertions from the state church, such as Primate George Dowdell of Armagh and Bishop John Quinn of Limerick. In the regions beyond Crown Control, or where royal authority was influenced, sorry, was negligible, many bishops had not submitted to royal authority or had even been tendered the oath of supremacy. It is generally accepted by scholars such as Patrick Carrish, Colm Lennon and Alan Ford, for example, that most of the bishops who had conformed to the state church did so outwardly. They displayed little enthusiasm for promoting the Edwardian liturgical innovations and theological interpretations. Thus a cultural conservatism, rather than an orthodox doctrinal position, may best explain their position. Furthermore, there is the possibility that these men had calculated that the Edwardian innovations would not long survive the boy king whose infirmities were well known. Only the English-born bishops, such as John Bale of Ossery, Thomas Lancaster of Kildare, and Edward Staples of Mead, 
maintained a more definite spiritual or ideological commitment to Protestantism, and they were duly deposed. In this sense, they could be regarded as mere images of their ideologically committed counterparts, Thomas Leverell, William Walsh, and Hugh de Lacey, to whom I have earlier referred. Their compatriot and fellow iconoclast, George Brown of Dublin, and the Irish-born Edwardian reformer, William Casey of Limerick, were prepared to conform to Mary's agenda, but the elasticity that, that elasticity did not prevent their deprivation of office. Mary's policy sought to create a better calibre of bishop. Whilst loyal men with legal and, and administrative ability and experience would always be required for ecclesiastical offices, Mary demanded that they would also be of orthodox theological, spiritual and moral, and moral disposition. Also, she wanted her bishops to improve the general standards of discipline, morality, education and spirituality amongst the clergy. In this regard, Mary and her cousin and advisor, Reginald Cardinal Pole, whose legatine faculties were extended to Ireland in July 1555, anticipated the decrees of the, the, decrees of the Council of Trent concerning clerical standards. So, given Mary's intentions and expectations of her appointees, how did the Irish bishops measure up? At the time of her accession in autumn 1553, there were leading figures who, in various diverging ways, managed to maintain Catholic liturgical practices and to obstruct Edwardian innovations. These included Thomas Leverell, the former tutor and chaplain of the Earl of Kildare, the Dominican Master David Brown, chaplain of the Earl of Desmond, John Quinn, papal bishop of Limerick, Christopher Bodkin, who was the royal archbishop of Tune, and Roland de Burgo, who was simultaneously papal and royal bishop of Clonfert, as well as Royal Bishop of Elvin. They were soon joined by Archbishop George Dowdle of Armagh, who had returned from continental exile, William Walsh and Hugh de Lacey. With the exception of David Brown, these men would play a prominent role as bishops in promoting Marian religious policy. Mary focused her attention on the episcopate in English Ireland, as it was only in this area that she had, effectively, she had effective authority and jurisdiction to enforce her policy. Outside this area, she left episcopal appointments to the papacy. As long as these bishops were Catholic, she was content to tolerate their appointments without her influence in the process. Within the first two years of her reign, Mary deprived of the six prelates, whom she had classified as actively heretical and unrepentant. She appointed nine prelates in English Ireland, most notably George Dowdle to Armagh, William Walsh to Bees, Thomas Leverett to Kildare, and Hugh de Lacey to Limerick. After his arrival in England in 1554, Cardinal Pole also absolved seven prelates serving in English Ireland of canonical irregularities. The fact that they were canonical rather than doctrinal provides further testimony to the argument that those who outwardly conformed <coughs> to the Henrician and Edwardian reformations did not promote the latter's doctrinal changes. Such relative numbers <coughs> reflect Mary's pragmatism, prudence, and her emphasis on continuity. There was no wholesale radical or reactionary changes made at any time. The process was gradual, but nevertheless comprehensive, effective, and assured. She retained all those prelates who had either ignored Protestantism in Gaelic in regions or, no, or nominally submitted to jurisdictional change, but had maintained Catholic practice in England, Ireland, English Ireland. She recognised their essentially Catholic spiritual cultural disposition that had been trapped or compromised in adverse political circumstances. Indeed, Mary herself had burst bitter personal experience of that situation when her father had forced her to accept his ecclesiastical supremacy and her illegitimization. However, the main proof of Queen Mary's success 
lies in the reaction of her appointees when confronted with adversity. Following the death of Queen Mary and Cardinal Pole in November 1558, it is the contention of this paper that her prelates had defended Catholic interests against the Elizabethan Reformation. Some, such as Thomas Lebrew and William Walsh, did so by open opposition and defiance and were swiftly removed from office. It is worth noting here that both of them had close associations with Reginald Cardinal Pole and the early Catholic reform movement during their exile on the continent in the Henrician and early Edwardian periods. Both had provided intellectual leadership in Mary's Irish Episcopate, particularly William Walsh, who had served as Cardinal Pole's deputy legate in Ireland. Whilst Catholic confessionalist historians have praised their example and willingness to suffer for their fate, this paper would propose that those bishops who appeared to accept the Elizabethan church settlement in 1560, but who did not actually comply in enforcing the reforms, and instead maintained or facilitated a clandestine Catholicism, either in intentionally or unintentionally, actually provided a more effective service in ensuring the survival of the Catholic faith tradition. The Christian maxim, by their fruits shall ye know them, this lays emphasis on one's actions and achievements over what one promises and preaches. In this way, one sees the true calibre of an individual. In this regard, we can thereby appreciate the strategies that were adopted by those prelates who appear to conform to Elizabeth's state church. Indeed, it was a point that the papal commissary, David Wolfe, himself made in his reportage to Rome concerning Bodkin, de Burgo, Walsh, amongst others, during the 1560s. The open opposition of Marian appointees such as William Walsh, Thomas Leverell and Hugh de Lacey to Elizabethan religious policies are well known. The maintenance of clandestine Catholicism by apparent conformists such as Hugh Kerwin and Christopher Bodkin has also received attention, recent attention. For the purpose of this paper and given the time restrictions on its delivery, we will focus our attention on two case studies amongst the surviving prelates in English Ireland from the Marian reign who held on to office well into Elizabeth's reign by means of outward conformity and clandestine Catholicism. These prelates are going to be Roland de Burgo of Clonfert and Elfin and Patrick Walsh of Waterford and Lismore. Roland de Burgo was a member of the powerful ruling nobility of East Connacht, the McWilliam Burks. He thus had much influence and support in the region. This facilitated his survival in office as the Henrician, Edwardian and Elizabethan regimes were obliged to tolerate his poor enforcement of their ecclesiastical reforms. On the 18th of May, 1534, the papacy unilaterally provided Roland de Burgo to the bishop of bishopric of Clonfert. He held the see at the expense of the royal nominee, Dr. Richard Nangle. Yet ever the politique, de Burgo is generally regarded as having accepted the oath of supremacy in October 1541, just days prior to his royal confirmation in that office. During the Edwardian reign, Bishop de Burgo was also granted administration of the See of Elphin by the Crown on the 23rd of November 1551. He held possession of the diocese, supported by the local power, in opposition to the papal bishop, Bernard O'Higgins. Yet, as F.X. Martin, Thomas Flynn and Coleman O'Clawbig have observed, de Burgo's opposition to O'Higgins had more to do with possession of the diocesan temporalities and local politico-economic interests of the McWilliam Burks rather than any ideological principles. Meanwhile, traditional Catholic practice continued under his watch in both dioceses. De Burgo did not interfere with or obstruct the pastoral activities of the mendicant friars. 
he also made no endeavours to promote the Edwardian Reformation. Following Queen Mary's accession, an investigation was held in Lambeth Palace concerning de Burgo's conduct. Whilst he was exonerated of heresy, he was pardoned by Cardinal Paul on the 7th of October 1555 for his canonical irregularities, particularly concerning Elphin. Again, Rowland's local influence and the power of his dynasty may have influenced Paul in this decision. Rowland participated in the ceremonial reception for Lord Deputy Sussex at Galway in 1558 and in the revived traditional procession and today on ceremony in his cathedral. Rowland also served on the local royal commission for the recovery of ecclesiastical goods. Following the accession of Queen Elizabeth, it is claimed by Protestant historians that de Burgo attended the 1560 Irish Parliament and that he probably acquiesced in the passage of legislation for the Elizabethan church settlement. Yet Catholic confessionists claim that there is no direct evidence that he acquiesced to the passage of this legislation through Parliament. Similarly, no evidence, the evidence is inconclusive as to whether de Burgo took the oath of royal supremacy after Parliament. Claims that he had are based on David Wolfe's report, October 1561 report, to Cardinal Moroni, the protector of Ireland, in Rome. Wolfe stated that de Burgo had taken the oath of allegiance to Elizabeth I. Some scholars interpret this as confirmation that he took the oath of supremacy. Yet Catholic historians contend that it is wrong to assume that by this statement, Wolfe is referring to the oath of supremacy. He may have been referring to the traditional oath of fidelity. Catholic historians also claim that Wolfe did not see the oath of allegiance as any proof of Protestantism. This view emanates from the fact that in the same letter, Wolfe recommended Archbishop Bodkin, who had also taken the same oath of allegiance as de Burgo, for papal favour. In any case, whether de Burgo submitted or not to the oath of royal supremacy in the Elizabethan reign, he still managed to satisfy the Crown authorities. De Burgo's subsequent actions in Elizabeth's reign stressed political loyalty to the Crown, which thereby earned him freedom from Crown scrutiny. As Thomas Connors has demonstrated, he thereby used this relative liberty to maintain and tacitly promote Catholic practice locally. During this period of the 1560s, when the Elizabethan regime was still vulnerable, the royal authorities were obliged to turn a blind eye in religious matters in order to secure political loyalty and cooperation. There is no evidence that de Burgo used the Reformed liturgy or promoted Anglicanism during Elizabeth's reign. He continued to serve on royal commissions until his death, yet these were concerned with civil matters, not religious. He was granted, along with Bodkin, the right to administer the oath of royal supremacy and execute ecclesiastical justice throughout the province, yet there is no evidence that he acted upon this commission. Furthermore, following his appeals to David Wolfe, citing his endeavours in defence of the Catholic faith, as much as circumstances would allow, he was praised by Wolfe, who recommended him to Rome for special favour due to his endeavours in maintaining Catholicism. He also described de Burgo, as well as Bodkin, as in the ways of the world good and honest men. Wolfe thereby saw the pragmatic utility of de Burgo's outward conformity in such testing political circumstances. De Burgo also played a major part in a ceremonial reception for Lord Deputy Sidney at Galway City in the revived traditional procession and in the Te Deum ceremony in 1567 in his cathedral. In his later years, Bishop de Burgo was forced to adopt a strategy for survival that involved forging closer links and cooperating to a greater degree with the increasing royal influence in the locality. This was necessary as Elizabeth had finally been excommunicated in 1570 and she had withdrawn leniency towards her Catholic subjects. 
that such cooperation had the effect of increasingly estranging him from his kinsmen. Yet despite this more difficult environment, de Burgo still maintained Catholic practice during this period, as much as circumstances would allow. Indeed, there is evidence that de Burgo continued to celebrate traditional Mass daily. <clears throat> Following de Burgo's death in June 1580, he was buried according to Catholic rites. Indeed, he was eulogised by the four masters, as well as the annals of Loch Hay. He was mentioned as de Bonne Memoriae in the paper provision of a successor. This further suggests that Rome was aware of his Catholic disposition. The available evidence thereby suggests that de Burgo's outward nominal conformity allowed him a considerable degree of flexibility, which he used to maintain a clandestine practice of Catholicism in his diocese. De Burgo has chosen his battleground carefully, his local power base where he enjoyed the protection of his noble kinsmen and not the floor of the Irish Parliament in Tudor-controlled Dublin. Another very interesting exemplar of the outward conformist position amongst the surviving prelates in English Ireland from Mary's reign is Bishop Patrick Walsh of Waterford and Lismore. He was unilaterally appointed by the Crown in Edward VI's reign. He took the oath of supremacy to both Edward and Elizabeth. He also promoted the passage of the Elizabethan ecclesiastical legislation through the Irish Parliament in 1560. For this, he was castigated by Catholic historians as a pitiful time-server whose motivation was self-interest, or perhaps fear, rather than a commitment to Catholicism. Yet when he was investigated in May 1555 in Mary's reign, Walsh was found not to have promoted heresy. Instead, he was absolved by Cardinal Pole from his canonical irregularities and was regranted the diocese. Walsh was a member of the powerful merchant and civic family of that name in Waterford. This factor gave him considerable leniency for his various transgressions on the part of both the papacy and the crown. He also had an excellent education, getting an MA from Oxford, and he enjoyed a reputation for learning and religion. He returned to Ireland and became a chaplain to Lord Deputy St. Ledger. He then became Dean of Waterford Cathedral in March 1547. He was unilaterally appointed as Royal Bishop of Waterford and Lismore in June 1551. He was consecrated under the Roman Rite, but the authority that had appointed him, Edward VI, was both schismatic and heretical. Walter had taken the oath of supremacy in order to attain this position. It seemed at the time, too, reformers in the Edwardian regime that Walter would be the ideal Irish-born reformer who would promote Protestantism in Ireland. Yet when he took possession of the see, according to the firebrand reformer John Bale, Walsh disguised the communion service of the Edwardian prayer book so that it resembled and was regarded as the old rite. He did absolutely nothing to promote Protestant doctrine and liturgy. Walton also highlights that Walsh also facilitated the pastoral activities of the mendicant friars in Waterford City. Yet Walsh's apparent conformity in Waterford and Lismore satisfied neither Edwardian Protestants nor Reformed Catholics under Mary I. It is reputed that he had children by a concubine and that he had alienated sea property, yet these were failings in discipline rather than of doctrine. Cardinal Pole apparently tolerated them when he granted Walsh's supplication for absolution on the 24th of May 1555. As with Roland de Burgo and other outward conformists, the Cardinal's pragmatism in recognising Walsh's family influence in the region may have influenced his decision to retain Walsh in his see. Interestingly, Walsh was also used by Cardinal Pole as an intermediary by which to absolve Irish clergy and laity of irregularity. Walsh also played a major part in the ceremonial reception for Lord Deputy Sussex 
at Waterford City in the revived traditional procession and the Deum ceremony in its cathedral in November 1558. Following Elizabeth's accession, Bishop Walsh promoted the Crown's ecclesiastical reform reformation legislation in the Irish Parliament of 1560, and again he took the oath of royal supremacy. Yet there is no evidence that he actively promoted Anglicanism or obliged his clergy to strictly observe the rubrics of the Elizabethan prayer book. Further evidence that he was a clandestine Catholic motivated by pragmatism and operating beneath a veil of nominal conformity comes from the fact that Walsh received absolution from David Wolfe. It is also claimed that Bishop Walsh abjured in private his nominal Protestantism to the Catholic bishop Edmund Tanner of Cork in 1577. Significantly, Bishop Walsh had promoted the candidacy of the staunchly Catholic Peter White to the deanship of Waterford in June 1566 and continued to support him in this role until he resigned and resumed his mastership of his classical school in Kilkenny. Walsh also continued to support White in his Kilkenny Academy, as did the local conformist Bishop John Tonnery. This patronage helped to ensure that the next generation of leading Catholic figures, such as Peter Lombard, Patrick Comerford, Richard Stanleyhurst, and Luke Wadding, would receive their early intellectual formation. Following his death in 1578, Bishop Walsh's clandestine Catholic disposition was recognised by the papacy in its 1629 letters of provision for his successor, Patrick Comerford, as de Bonne Memoriae. In arguing this case, and to neutralise queries on the subject, reference should also be made to, the, to a letter dated the 20th of November 1629 of Father Thomas Strange to Luke Wadding, the influential Irish Franciscan in Rome. Strange argues, on behalf of Bishop Comerford, Patrick Walsh's episcopal successor, that Patrick Walsh, amongst other prelates, had capitulated to Elizabeth I, and that Walsh had died an obstinate heretic. Strange thereby asked for Wadding's help in having Bishop Comerford's bull amended by the Roman authorities to exclude reference to Walsh. Yet, firstly, this letter should be juxtaposed against other evidence previously mentioned reflecting Bishop Walsh's Catholic attachments. Also, in Bishop Patrick Comerford's own letter to Luke Wadding, written two days after that of Thomas Strange, he made no reference to having the aforementioned clause concerning Patrick Walsh in his paper bull of appointments revised. Therefore, perhaps this episode is indicative or symbolic of the new type of counter-reformation cleric, especially a bishop who could not contemplate any form of compromise with heresy. Bearing this in mind, perhaps Comerford's complaints to Strange were merely an expression of scandalised pique at being associated with a compromiser such as Patrick Walsh. Obviously, Walsh would not measure up to the new Roman mood in 17th century for bearing uncompromising witness to the faith, including its ultimate form of martyrdom. Yet it needs to be stressed that under Bishop Walsh's stewardship, the Reformation made no progress in Waterford. Indeed, the Waterford region became the most strongly Catholic part of Ireland. This was facilitated by Walsh's outward conformity, obstruction of heretical reform, and tacit promotion of Catholic reform. So in conclusion, it has already been stated at the outset of this presentation that traditionally the Irish Marian bishops have been portrayed as lacking ideological commitment or moral fibre. It is claimed that very few spiritual peers oppose the Elizabethan ecclesiastical legislation in Parliament. This is generally regarded as a litmus test of their poor moral calibre. This is further emphasised 
a comparison to the response of Mary's English prelature, who rejected similar ecclesiastical legislation in the Parliament of 1559. Yet this paper contends that this representation of the quality of Mary's Irish Episcopate is misleading. Nominal or outward conformism towards the Elizabethan religious policy by surviving prelates in English Ireland from the Marian reign had precedence in Henry's and Edward's reign. Such a policy was not merely a self-serving device to hold onto office status and revenue. It prevented the replacement by an heretic. Aware of the English Catholic Episcopate's public witness to the faith and its swift replacement by a Protestant one, and a consequent loss of means for maintaining widespread Catholic influence, most of the Irish bishops made a pragmatic calculation that to, to submit and accommodate themselves to a political reality. Yet this submission was merely nominal, and it gave them the required leeway from crown scrutiny in order to maintain tacit Catholic practice locally. By their non-enforcement of Anglicanism, a better practical result for Catholicism than outright opposition would give was achieved. Their realism was based on the fact that responsibility for enforcement of the Elizabethan church settlement would devolve on the bishops. Thus, by nominal submission, they could block or delay or hinder the enforcement of reform in an effective and enduring fashion. In this regard, we need to reassess and revise the traditional notion that Mary's objectives for Irish Lord's spiritual had ended in failure. Thank you.